Hello and welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. This week, I'm looking at the mystery of the murder in room 1046. Before starting, this episode touches upon themes of suicide, and we'll also discuss wounds and death. If that's something that's upsetting for you, you know what to do. I'm not going to be mad if you mark it as played. The hotel president in Kansas City was built in 1926 by Frank Dudley. It was the headquarters for the 1928 Republican National Convention, the convention that named Herbert Hoover for president. It's seen entertainers such as Frank Sinatra, Benny Goodman and Marilyn May. The story for today begins in 1935. On January 2nd, a man who called himself Roland T. Owen checked into the hotel. He was given room 1046. Witnesses said he looked to be between 20 and 35 with brown hair, a scar on his scalp above an ear and a cauliflower ear. Cauliflower ear is where the ear swells up due to a direct blow to it. Owen had a black coat on and that was the only other descriptor that was given. The bellboy, Randolph Propst, helped Owen to his room and reported that Owen had only packed a brush, a comb and toothpaste. Later in the afternoon, the maid, Mary Soptic, was doing her housekeeping rounds. When she entered room 1046, she noticed that the room was dimly lit and the blinds were drawn. Owen was still inside. He allowed Soptic to clean whilst he was there but asked her not to lock the door when she left because Owen was expecting company. Later, Soptic would explain that she thought that Owen had looked worried or scared. At 4pm that day, Soptic returned to the room with fresh towels. The room was unlocked and inside, she once again found the room dark. This time, Owen was laying fully clothed on the bed. There was a note in the room that said, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. At 10.30am the next morning, Soptic found herself once again at Owen's door. The door was locked this time, but it appeared to be locked from outside. Soptic believed this to be because Owen had locked the room on her way out, but when she entered the room, she once again found Owen. While she was cleaning, he answered a phone call. Soptic only heard half of the call, but she heard Owen saying, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I just had breakfast. At the same time as the previous day, Soptic returned at 4pm to deliver fresh towels. At the door of the room, she heard two male voices coming from inside. She knocked. One voice asked who it was, 
and Soptic told the men inside. The voice responded in a rough tone, We don't need any. Soptic recalls that there hadn't been any towels in the room because she'd taken them away when she cleaned the room. Later that evening, a woman staying in 1048 complained that she had heard loud voices, both male and female, in the corridor of her floor. Allegedly, there was a party in 1055, and that was used as a reason for the voices in the corridor. Around 7am on January 4th, the hotel phone operator noticed that the light was on for 1046. The light meant that the phone was off the hook. The operator, Della Ferguson, asked Randolph Propst to go and see if Owen was okay. He made his way up to 1046, only to discover a do not disturb sign on the door. He knocked anyway, and a voice said he could enter. The door was locked though, so Props just asked if the room's occupant could hang up the phone. At 8.30am, the phone was still off the hook. This time, the hotel manager sent a different bellboy, Harold Pike, to get the phone put back on the hook. Pike used his key to enter the room. Inside, he noticed that Owen was lying face down on the bed, naked. The bedding underneath seemed dark in colour, but Pike took no notice of it, assuming that Owen was just passed out drunk. He put the phone back on the hook and left the room. Somewhere between 10.30am and 10.45am, the phone was removed from the receiver. Propst was sent back up to the room to resolve it again, but this time he stumbled upon something awful. According to Prop's statement, he found Owen on his knees and elbows, holding his head in his hands. Props noticed the blood on Owen's head, and he turned the light on. In the light, Props saw blood on the walls, bed, and in the bathroom. Props left right away, scared. As soon as he got to a phone, he called for help. Investigators appeared before the ambulance and they asked Owen who the other person had been when Soptic was locked out. Owen just answered nobody, explaining that he fell against the bathtub. Owen ended up being taken to the hospital where his injuries were chronicled. Owen had been tied up with some kind of cord which was wrapped around his neck, wrists and ankles. He had suffered a skull fracture from being hit on the head repeatedly. He was suffering from a punctured lung after being stabbed in the chest multiple times, and his neck was bruised, suggesting he had been suffocated. The doctors looking after Owen said that these injuries had been inflicted around six to seven hours before props discovered him. Police investigated the room, and found no weapons or any of the small amount of Owen's belongings, and they ruled suicide out. They lifted four fingerprints off of the phone, believing one to belong to a woman. They also found two empty drinking glasses, an unlit cigarette, a hairpin, a safety pin, 
and a bottle of clear liquid that was later identified as sulfuric acid. Owen succumbed to his injuries just after midnight on January 5th. When the body was moved to the Melody McGilly funeral home, people came to identify him. A man named Robert Lane said that he thought he had given Owen a ride to a taxi on January 3rd around 10pm. He said that Owen had flagged him down like a taxi, but apologised when he realised the car wasn't one. Lane said that Owen had a deep scratch on his arm and was possibly bleeding from another wound. Lane drove him to a taxi and never saw Owen again. This lead was dismissed when the hotel staff said that they had seen Owen come back that night without an injury. The doctor said that Owen had sustained his injuries around 4 or 5 a.m. based on how the blood had dried on Owen's body and on the hotel's walls. The investigators spoke to the hotel staff to find out anything they could about Owen. The hotel staff seemed to remember that Owen had said he was from Los Angeles. The investigators contacted the LA authorities to find out who he was, but they couldn't find anyone by the name Roland T. Owen. One of the leads investigators found helped them to discover that Owen was seen with two unidentified women in liquor stores between January 2nd and 3rd, but that was a dead end. The investigators followed up on conversations that they'd had with Propst and Soptic. They discovered that Owen had told them he had stayed in the Hotel Moolabak the night before, but the hotel had tried to increase the price and Owen had come to the president instead. The investigators went to the Moolabak to check the register for Owen. His name wasn't in it. When questioned, staff there said that a man who looked like Owen had stayed in the hotel on the night in question. He had listed his home as Los Angeles, but his name was listed as Eugene K. Scott. This information led to another lead, where they discovered another alias for Owen, Cecil Werner. It turns out that Owen had tried to sign himself up for some wrestling matches using that name. The investigation shifted to the man that Owen referred to as Don in his notes. The police came up with nothing. They went forward with the announcement that Owen's body would be buried. The funeral home then received an anonymous phone call that said that the caller would pay for Owen to have a proper burial. The money arrived in bundled in a newspaper from an anonymous sender funeral flowers and a card that read Love Forever, Louise, also arrived. This was on March 23rd. In 1936, a picture of Roland T. Owen appeared in a magazine, along with an article that covered the mysterious death. A friend of a woman named Ruby Ogletree saw it and recognised Owen's photo. They took the magazine to Ruby and showed her. She identified Roland T. Owen as her son, Artemis Ogletree. She identified him based on the scar on his head and the cauliflower ear. 
She thought it was strange since in 1935, after the death of Artemis, she had been receiving typewritten letters about the travels of Artemis. Even that was strange since Artemis didn't know how to use a typewriter. The pieces all began to slip into place. The contents of the letters didn't sound like things her son would say. She'd also received letters from places like Chicago, Europe, New York and other places. After Ruby told investigators who Owen really was, the case went cold due to a lack of leads. In the early 2000s, John Honer received a call from out of state. The call was about Artemis Ogletree. The caller claimed to have found a box that contained newspaper articles about the murder and an item that was referenced in papers as one of Artemis's belongings. The caller never said what it was. The box was never followed up on and the case has gone cold again. To this day, nobody knows what really happened to Artemis Ogletree to have him in such a state when he was discovered in room 1046. Roland T. Owen, Eugene K. Scott, Cecil Werner and Artemis Ogletree were all the same person. He showed up in Kansas City in 1935 and was found in room 1046 in a sorry state. What happened? Of course, there are theories. I wouldn't leave you hanging. The first theory today is that the mysterious Don killed Artemis alone. Of course, he didn't finish the job. When props entered the room, Artemis was still alive. What this theory doesn't explain is what had happened between the time that Harold Pike entered the room to put the phone on the hook and when Propst had entered the room and turned the lights on. Had Don been there the whole time? The second theory is that Don killed Artemis, but with help from someone else. This theory involves the testimony of an elevator operator called Charles Bloker. On the night of the murder, Bloker said that he had seen a commercial woman, which I'm guessing means a sex worker, going up to the 10th floor. He said that she was looking for room 1026 to meet someone. It's speculated that she had the wrong room number. Remember, one of the fingerprints lifted from the phone was believed to be female. Also, on January 3rd, there were complaints about male and female voices being loud in 1046. This theory is more plausible than Don acting alone. Another theory suggests that the anonymous caller who paid for the funeral had something to do with it. The theory suggests that Artemis was engaged, but had cheated on his fiancée with another woman. Her brother found him and went after Artemis, causing him to flee. Eventually, someone caught up with Artemis and made him pay for hurting the fiancée. 
This theory was published in the media and it suggested that they sensationalised the story since the phone call to the funeral home never suggested this. It's, it just said that the funeral would be paid for. It's also possible that the death of Artemis was a mob hit. The name Don might not have been short for Donald. It could have meant the head of the mob. The sulfuric acid found in the room during the investigation is important for this theory. Many organised crime informants have mentioned that they have used sulfuric acid to dissolve a body or at least remove fingerprints to make a body difficult to identify. He could have been involved with the mob and cost them money by losing the wrestling matches he'd signed up for. It explains why he said that nobody had inflicted the wounds on him. They likely knew exactly who Artemis was. Regardless of what you believe, the fact remains that Artemis was staying in hotels under assumed names and one morning had suffered grievous injuries from someone. Nobody knows who Don is, nor do they know why Artemis was pretending to be somebody else. It's unlikely we'll ever get answers for this one. The story from this episode came from a Medium article called The Unsolved Mystery of the Creepy Murder in Room 1046, a Penn State article called Case Number 5, The Murder in Room 1046, a Grunge article called The Creepy Story Behind Artemis Ogletree's Murder, and a Faxology article called Who Killed Roland T. Owen in Room 1046. Theories from this episode came from the Penn State article and the Faxology article. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, links to those and other ways to listen are in the episode description under my link tree. You can currently find me on Facebook and Instagram. Patreon is getting an upload of one of the transcripts each week as part of the £3 tier. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree and, as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. I do have an email set up on the link tree, but it doesn't open a new email so that's in the description of the episode too. Send me your spooky stories, unexplained events and anything else you want me to read out. Or, if you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said, let me know and I'll address them as soon as I see the email. The next Creature feature will be out on Saturday and next week's episode comes out on July 13th. So hold on until then.